Welcome to Transformed by Grace, an in-depth Bible study of God's Word presented by the Berean Bible Society. Join us each time on this station as Pastor Kevin brings the transforming message of God's grace revealed through the Holy Scriptures. Imagine, if you will, that the most dangerous terrorist in the world had just left God's holy and blessed city in the United States, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I was born, and he's on his way to your home. He is specifically targeting believers in Christ for destruction. His intent is to seize you, to arrest you, and have you put to death. If you found out that he was coming, you would surely consider scattering from your area. But what if, after locking the doors, you first decided to pray? How would you pray? Maybe that God would somehow strike them dead, or that he would have a divine accident along the way, that he would be delayed so you had time to get far away, that something would waylay or direct his attention away from your location, that God would set a hedge of protection around you and your home. Would you ever expect or consider praying that the terrorist would be converted along the way and saved from all his sins and have a complete change of heart and mind and become a believer in Christ? Probably not. Yet, that's exactly what happened to the terrorist named Saul of Tarsus and how unexpected his conversion was for believers in that day. Having come from God's holy and blessed city, Jerusalem, and just out city, outside the city he was targeting, Damascus, Christ broke through the clouds and he saved Saul by his grace and completely redirected the trajectory of his entire life. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 read, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. There is a lot of suffering, terror, and death bound up in the word yet in verse 1. Since Stephen's martyrdom, Saul had been persecuting those who believed in Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's Messiah. During that time, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter, or literally murder, against the followers of the Lord. Saul became a one-man army against what he considered to be the most dangerous heresy of his day, that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And the words breathing out have the idea that he was so intensely carrying out his persecution against those who believed in Christ, that he was like a wild beast that snorts before it attacks, or like a war horse sniffing the smell of battle. Saul was on a murderous mission. Threatening and slaughter had become the very air that he breathed. Hate, violence, and murder completely consumed Saul. It had become his whole way of life. Having persecuted believers in and around Jerusalem, Saul's zeal led him to desire to travel to far-off cities like Damascus in Syria to search for believers there. 
Thus he went unto the high priest, verse 1 says, which likely was still Caiaphas at that time, the high priest before whom the Lord was brought in question in those sham trials of the early morning hours of the day of the Lord's crucifixion. Saul went to the high priest desiring letters, legal documents addressed to the Jewish synagogues in Damascus. Now, Damascus stands about 135 miles to the north-northeast of Jerusalem. And at the rate of travel that they had back then, that was about a week's journey in Saul's day. Damascus had a sizable Jewish population then, and there were several synagogues in the city. Many Jews lived there, and there were additional refugees in Damascus as a result of them fleeing there for safety, from the persecution that Saul was leading at the time. The letters given to Saul granted him permission and legal authority from the high priest to go to each synagogue in Damascus to place under arrest both men and women, men and women who believed in Christ, that is, and to extradite and bring them back bound to Jerusalem for to be punished, Acts 22, 5 adds, which likely meant even their execution. Now, I want you to stop and think about these letters for a second. These letters that Saul so desired that he could continue breathing out threatenings and slaughter against Christ's followers, those letters were letters of hatred, violence, suffering, and death. But then think about the 13 letters in your Bible authored by the Apostle Paul. Letters which encourage the saints, letters of grace and love, of faith in Christ, letters which declare the good news of Christ's death and resurrection and our eternal life in Him. When you compare these letters, you find a man who was converted, made new, completely transformed by the risen glorified Christ. And Christ still does that. As we trust Him for salvation and we yield to His working, He can and He will transform our lives by His grace like He did with Saul. Saul went to Damascus searching for any of this way, as Luke put it. The description of believers as this way appears in Acts a number of times, and it likely derives from Christ's words where he said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that they belonged to and believed in the way. It could also be referencing the Lord's words in Matthew seven fourteen that narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and that believers were those of the narrow way. A guy spotted a sign outside a house that read, Talking Dog for Sale. Intrigued, he walked up to the house, and he asked the dog that was sitting there, So what have you done with your life? And the dog replied, I've led a very full life. I lived in the Alps, rescuing avalanche victims. Then I served my country in Iraq. And now I spend my days reading to the residents of a retirement home. The guy was flabbergasted, so he asked the dog's owner who was standing there, why on earth would you want to get rid of an incredible dog like that? 
And the owner replied, because he's a liar. He never did any of those things. Saul was maddened by those who believed that Christ was risen from the dead. He believed them to be liars. And this drove him to faraway places like Damascus to persecute any of this way who believed in Christ and to Paul who were calling a dead man the Messiah. Acts chapter 9 verses 3 to 4 read, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? As Saul was still charging full speed ahead with his persecution and had almost reached Damascus about noon, suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Paul had been walking in darkness, but then he saw the light. And suddenly he was confronted with the true light, the Lord Jesus Christ. The light he saw was not anything from the material creation. In Acts 26.13, Paul described it as above the brightness of the sun. It transcended the brilliance of the sun's light, which was shining in its full strength at midday at that moment. This bright light from heaven was the radiance of the glory of God, and this glory light and the power of it caused Saul to fall down to the earth. Acts 26.14 tells us that all those who were with Saul also fell down to the ground. The men with him saw the light, but did not see the Lord like Paul did. Verse 7 points out that they heard a voice, but saw no man. Only Saul heard the voice from heaven asking him the question, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The repetition of Saul's name here is for emphasis, but also repetition of names in the Bible is born out of an intensity of personal feeling at critical moments. When Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah in obedience to the Lord, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. As he was appointing Moses as Israel's deliverer out of the burning bush, Jehovah God called out to him and said, Moses, Moses. And when our Lord was made sin for us and was forsaken by the Father at the cross, the Lord cried out to his father, Eli, Eli, lama, sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? And here, at a critical point in God's dealings with mankind, and to stop this man who was severely persecuting his people, the Lord called out, Saul, Saul. First, you find that Christ knew his name. And second, that the Lord knew what he was doing. Because as God... The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. No one can hide things from God. He knows our name, and he knows all our ways. And thus, this being so, the Lord asked Saul, Why persecutest thou me? 
He didn't ask Saul why he was persecuting them or the kingdom church or my kingdom church. or He says, me. Christ so identifies himself with his people that to persecute his people is to persecute him. The Lord is so inseparably united to his people that what they suffer, he suffers. And their persecution is his persecution. We'll be returning to the program in just a minute. But first, we'd like to take this time to thank you, our partners, for making these programs possible. If you would like to access our library of helpful Bible study tools, go to BereanBibleSociety.org. The Historical Beginning of the Church is a 60-page booklet written by Pastor Paul M. Sadler. This booklet is a journey through the Book of Acts to determine when the Church, the Body of Christ, began historically. Christendom, for the most part, believes the birthday of the Church took place on the day of Pentecost. However, as you will see, this view is weighed in the balance and found wanting. To order your copy, contact the Berean Bible Society for pricing and availability at 262-255-4750 or visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. To receive our free full-color 32-page monthly magazine, The Berean Searchlight, call 262-255-4750 or subscribe online at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. Thank you again for your generous gifts. And now, back to the teaching with Pastor Kevin. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Paul asked the one speaking to him, Who art thou, Lord? Now the word Lord in the original Greek does not in itself imply that Paul regarded the voice he heard as belonging to God. But when you put the whole scene together, and given the supernatural aspect of the event, the sudden appearance and the bright light from heaven and the fact that the one speaking to him knew his name and what he was doing, it seems evident that Paul knew he was being addressed by the Sovereign One of Heaven. Paul asked, Who are you, Lord? But he didn't expect, he never expected the answer that he got to his question. He did not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was Lord or God or risen from the dead. He thought Christ's followers were mistaken and were liars. Thus, the Lord's response to the trembling questioner that I am Jesus was astonishing. And with crushing force, shattering all that he believed, Saul learned in this moment that Jesus Christ is God and is risen from the dead. And it changed Saul's whole way of thinking. In that instant, Saul knew that Christ is all that he claimed to be and that he is the living Savior. Saul was now seeing the same one Stephen had seen standing on the right hand of God in heaven while Saul witnessed Stephen dying as he was being stoned. Stephen was the last person before Saul 
to have seen the resurrected, glorified Christ. And it is a powerful testimony to the power of God's grace that the man who was consenting unto Stephen's death and complicit in it as he cared for the outer robes of those who stoned him, that he would be the next one to see Jesus Christ. And the connection between Stephen and Paul is crucial in understanding Scripture. Because with one, with Stephen, Israel was temporarily set aside in her unbelief. With the other, Paul, God turned to the Gentiles and raised up the apostle of the Gentiles. The Lord told Saul that it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Pricks speak of goads, which were long, sharpened sticks. In Saul's day, goads were used to goad or prod an oxen along. When oxen were yoked for plowing, if they did not move or move as quickly as the farmer desired, he would prick them with a goad or that long, sharp stick. And sometimes a a stubborn ox would kick back against it and harm itself driving the goad deeper into its own flesh and causing itself more pain. And the Lord says to Paul that he was kicking back against the spiritual pricks to his heart, kicking against the working and conviction of the Holy Spirit as a result of the faithful testimony of those whom he was persecuting. Seeing their suffering, their devotion to Christ, their willingness to even die for him in the truth of his resurrection pricked Paul's heart. But he had been resisting the Lord, kicking back against those pricks, refusing to believe the truth. And the Lord tells Saul, knowing his heart and his thoughts, that he knew that these pricks were hard, difficult painful for him to kick against. He was harming himself in doing so. Because you can't fight, rebel, and make war against God and kick back against his working and not feel pain. It's much easier to relent and to trust him. Right here is Saul's conversion. You see his heart softened and won by his response. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And that's a heart that has been broken. Now think about his conversion. There's no baptismal on the Damascus Road. There's no Lord's Supper table, no communion table there. There's no good works for him to do that he might believe would save him. It's just him and Christ. And he's looking at Christ alone. And all he did was trust Christ alone. And that's all we do, too. We are saved by grace through faith alone. We follow Paul's pattern of just believing on him to life everlasting, as 1 Timothy 1.16 says. And Saul's conversion tells us that the people that we might believe, that they might be the most unreachable of people, are reachable. 
It teaches us that anyone and everyone is savable by the grace of God. By God's limitless grace, he saved Saul, the chief of sinners, and he will save anyone who believes and trusts Christ as their personal Savior. And after he believes, Saul's question is, is, that's God's desire for every person who trusts Christ. Lord, what would you have me to do? God would have us, like Paul, to hand over our lives to the one who saved us by his grace, being willing to do anything for him, to tell him, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything for you. And Saul, from this point on, was willing to do anything and go anywhere for Christ. He gave up his rights to himself and gave his life over to his Savior. Before his conversion, all Paul could think of was was what he could do to Christ and his followers. But after he was saved, all he could think of is what he could do for Christ. And you find how this proud man, on his way to arrest others, was arrested by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Saul became a humble, zealous servant of Christ for the rest of his days. Acts chapter 9, verses 8 and 9 read, And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. We learn here how the vision of the Lord and His glory blinded Paul's eyes. In Acts 22, when Paul recounted his conversion there, he recorded how he could not see for the glory of that light. And thus, the one who came storming up to Damascus with fury and hatred was then led by the hand into that city, blind and helpless. For three days, Saul then sat in his own personal darkness. This was a deeply significant time of spiritual reflection and prayer, during which he did not eat or drink, and he considered the depth of his conversion's meaning and richness. And we, the church, still need to ponder and consider the depth of his conversion's meaning. How the chief of sinners was saved apart from Israel, saved apart from prophecy, apart from the law of Moses, by grace alone. Why did this happen? And what does this mean? Saul's life was turned upside down on the road to Damascus, and God's entire dealings with mankind were turned upside down and changed by this conversion. Saul's conversion marked the dawning of a new age, a new dispensation, a new dealings with mankind. To Paul was later committed and revealed the dispensation of the grace of God and the revelation of the mystery which had been kept secret since the world began. God in his providence maneuvered Saul out of the land of Israel. When he got him outside the borders of the land, then Christ appeared to him. The reason for this was because in the new program of God, in this new age, this man, Saul, was to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. 
and Saul saw the glorified Lord from heaven, which inaugurated Christ's heavenly ministry as the head of the church, the body of Christ, and as the first member of the body of Christ was saved. This dispensation of grace began with an appearance of Christ from heaven, and it ends with an appearance of Christ from heaven at the rapture of the church. And the dispensation of grace began with the salvation of a soul by the grace and long-suffering of God. And this entire age is about the salvation of souls. We follow the pattern of Paul's salvation as by the grace and long-suffering of God, we too are saved. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Now is the day of salvation. But that is not a warning to the lost to believe now and not wait, as it is often used. Now is the day of salvation is a reminder and a challenge to the church that this age is a day of salvation and that we need to take advantage of it and sharing Christ and winning souls in our ministry of reconciliation. It is the day of salvation because salvation is so simple under grace. Just by grace through faith in Christ alone, not of works, anyone can be saved from all their sins, reconciled to God, and have an eternal home in heaven. And Christ had us Gentiles in view when he saved Saul. God saved Saul for your sake and for mine. It's because of his conversion and the message and the ministry that he had to the nations that we have been saved by grace and have the free gift of eternal life. It's because God set aside Israel for a time to have a program with the nations that we, 2,000 years later, have this opportunity and this blessing and privilege to have been saved by the grace of God, have a relationship with the living God, and a home in heaven forever. And thus thus we should stop and thank God for the conversion of Saul. William Barclay says this, which mirrors what took place in the conversion of Saul. When we trust Christ, we enter into three new relationships— First, we enter into a new relationship with God. The judge becomes the father. The distant becomes near. Strangeness becomes intimacy. And fear becomes love. Secondly, we enter into a new relationship with our fellow men. Hatred becomes love. Selfishness becomes service. Bitterness becomes forgiveness. Third, we enter into a new relationship with ourselves. Weakness becomes strength, frustration becomes achievement, and tension becomes peace. Thank you again for tuning in to Transformed by Grace. We appreciate your prayer support and the financial gifts. 
The purpose and mission of the Berean Bible Society is to help you understand the whole counsel of the Word of God. For more information, visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org or give us a call at 262-255-4750. Or if you prefer, write us at the Berean Bible Society, P.O. Box 756, Germantown, Wisconsin, 53022. Now until next time, may you be transformed by God's grace.